This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I am not, as you may guess, Sarah Kachansky from 11FS. I'm Nigel, and I'm hosting alone today, as unfortunately Sarah has been taken ill. So we hope you get better soon and come back to battle the e-scooters with me. Today's show is a new show, taking a look at some of the biggest news stories in insurance and insuretech over the last few weeks. And as always, I'm not alone. Um, Today, I'm joined by some lovely guests indeed. First up, we have Phoebe Hughes, CEO and founder of Broly. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Really well, thank you. Fantastic. Very. Tell us what. Tell us a little bit about what you do then. Um, so at Broly, we're um, we're on a mission to build the simplest insurance experience ever made, and that means building our own products, all wrapped into a monthly subscription, and supported by tools that help customers get in control of their insurance. Next up, we have Nicholas Sir, CEO and founder of Casco. Welcome to the show, first time. Yes, thank you. Very glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about Casco. So we provide InsureTech as a service. And really what it is um, for any insurer, MGA, broker, reinsurer, if there is more opportunity than IT capacity, um, we bring digital insurance products to life um, and scale them across any distribution channel. Fantastic. And making a return appearance, we have Ed Leon Klinger, co-founder and CEO of Flock. Ed, welcome back. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Always welcome. Tell us a little bit about Flock for those that don't know. So at Flock, our big mission is to make the world a safer and smarter place. Um, we do that by democratizing risk insights and providing risk insights to customers, whether they're people or small businesses or very large businesses, and allowing them to make good decisions. And we're starting in the drone industry. And you've just joined the Lloyds Lab. We did, yes. We're quite excited about it. Any more on that? Or more, more to, news soon? More news to come. Awesome. Okay, so let's get started. So, new show. First up today, uh, big news that everyone saw, of course, was Lloyd's turns to Trove for InsureTech offering. So, for those that have uh, missed the news this week, um, Lloyd's Banking Group is to use a white-labeled platform from one of our very early InsureTechs and favorites, Trove, to roll out a suite of insurance products for digitally native consumers. The Powered by Trove platform comprises of four core modules, including policy, claims, CRM, and business intelligence. And these can be configured for a variety of policy types, including homeowners, renters, motor, and SME. So the launch of the platform follows a pivot by Trove from a direct-to-customer offering to a white-label product provider to incumbents. So what do we think, folks? I've talked about the shift of uh, insurers that were doing D2C to platform businesses for a while. I've challenged a few folks. I've had lots of good challenge back. Do we see this as the norm going forward? I see, uh, for those that are not looking here, but Ed's raising his eyebrows cautiously. What do you think, guys? Well, I'm a big fan. Um, I'm a big fan of the move, the pivot, if you will. I'm a big fan of Trove. Uh, as well. They've actually been a bit of a guiding light for, for Flock. We're only three years old as a, as a company. I'll give a very quick bit of context around what we do. We price micro-duration insurance policies in real time, specifically for the drone industry, and that those prices are fed by contextual data so that we can assess risk. And Trove, what they've done, um, which I think is quite brilliant actually, is launch a series of products in various markets, B2C. Um, they've 
gained thousands of customers. They've sold thousands of policies. They've learned an absolutely enormous amount by doing that. They have actually pioneered the use of InsureTech, and I'm quite happy to use the word pioneer with respect to Trove because they've been going six years more, which, which makes them an, I think. an old-timer in the InsureTech <laughs> space. It's doggy um, years. Still relatively young as a company, but an old-timer in InsureTech years. Um, and they've learned an enormous amount. And I think that by making this move into B2B, what they're demonstrating is that they've actually, they're willing to adapt their business model to suit an evolving market. And the market, in my opinion, um, and probably in the opinion of other people around this table, is ready for InsureTech platforms. Large incumbents are ready to admit that they might not be the best at building and launching slick new digital digitally native products for digitally yeah, yeah. native individuals. And Trove have realized that, and they're making their platform, or their chassis, as they call it, available to incumbents. And so, I think that's brilliant. So, so, Phoebe, you might be able to answer this one better. Why doesn't the B2C product work? Or, or in your perspective, why doesn't it work? Because it's hard, right? I mean, um, yes, it's hard. I think that's, um, you know, a lot of companies have found that, and a lot of companies, you know, not just insurance switch from being a B2C to a B2B2C proposition. Um, I think, you know, Scott found that customer acquisition was difficult, it's expensive, and also the the on-demand model that they were um, pioneering um, has very low sort of GWP amounts. You're looking at, you know, one dollar for um, switching your you know DSLR camera on and um, to actually make a profit on that is is hard so I think you know the, the combination of trying to bring a new brand and also trying to acquire customers in that market is in this market is uh, is challenging. I mean, I, I use these guys all the time to demonstrate what InsureTech is to give people the idea of what micro insurance might be or switching things on and off. And I just, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I love what they do. I love the guys. I love the team. I worry about the whole, just because you can doesn't mean you say you should. So from a platform perspective, they've now pivoted to a point that says our platform is usable by everyone else. Does this mean that we then go to the rest of the incumbents and everyone else has the same capability? How do we differentiate? Well, I mean, I, I congratulate the move, but I also welcome the competition because basically <laughs> they're now in the same space as we are enabling InsureTech um, and, yeah, servicing the, let's say, tech stack, the MGA tech stack, however you want to call it, to incumbents and large distributors alike. Um, I think one of the reasons why, or there's a couple of reasons why it didn't work. I think, number one, the on-demand aspect requiring active engagement of the customer requires too much education and people just don't really engage that much. Mm. I think B2C is fun, is fundamentally difficult because a slick UX on a neobank where you engage a lot, where it actually removes a lot of friction, um, is one thing. If you now go into and go to continental European markets where you don't have renewals, so people, the UX aspect is actually not that relevant compared to getting a really good insurance proposition through a broker, through a trusted partner, through an intermediary. And I think that they probably found that out a lot sooner than yeah. they actually pivoted, but probably had some investors that... Well, you say, you say sooner, right? So it's 2012 when they started. They've raised circa, what, 114, I think? 114 That's a lot of money. It's a big war chest to go after existing players that are doing the, the pivot or have, who have just done platform already. Well, but I think it's, it's investor-driven, right? You, right? If you're a B2C investor, that is, it's a different play. Then a B2B2C investor, enterprise SaaS is a very different business, has a very different multiple, has a very different investor. So you need to, once you have that money, you need to explain why you want to switch and invest that money in a different space. And I think that takes some 
convincing. So what do you reckon? Bank assurance, how long will it take them to see results? Will it be different this time? I, I'll jump in. I, I won't give any specifics on how long <laughs> it'll take them to see results. But what I will say is, I think that by launching a B2C proposition first, gaining thousands of customers, learning about how those customers interact with technology, probably making a ton of mistakes along the way, and hopefully quickly iterating from, from those mistakes, there, it might still take a while for this to grow. It undoubtedly will. I mean, just landing this deal presumably took a very long time. The point about them making this pivot a long while ago and only announcing this news now is probably a very prescient point. Um, but what I would say is because of their experience in B2C, I think they're probably very well placed to actually not only launch a digitally savvy uh, product, but actually to be able to offer consultancy and advice and guidance based to on their experience they work with, because they have the data to show um, so, how these product launches. So go. it feels like summary: positive on the pivot, like what they're up to, good choice and partner, and could be really exciting going forward. Proof is in the pudding. Always talking about cake. Um, <laughs> a great pivot when you talk about digital savvy products and digital savvy customers, because our next news story is Broly launches flexible contents product. Can anyone here talk about that one? I can. And a great option. <laughs> Tell us what it's all about, because you've been overwhelmed with this, you said. Yes. Um, so we launched um, last week, and um, this is a product that we've build, been building for a while. Um, and, you know, we sort of set out with the premise, how do we build the simplest insurance experience possible? And, um, you know, we started with what we had learned from our policy management platform, which has been live and helping customers consolidate their insurance in one place. And there were some real key themes that emerged that customers struggle with trusting their insurer, um, with the complication of the products, and also that they're not rewarded as, as consumers. So um, Broly Contents is designed um, for renters and homeowners. It protects people up to £40,000 in the home. Um, it protects you up to 10,000 out of the home. And um, you can also specify items that are over two grand. And um, yeah, it's in beta. So we're just starting to test now. So congratulations, first and foremost, because launching is hard generally, right? And so we, we all know the work that goes into that. So great news. Why 40k out of interest? Is that a magic number? Is that something that you work with Hiscox on? How did that come about? We wanted to build something that was for um, people that need, you know, a, a smaller amount of contents. I mean, a lot of contents products out there give sort of blanket sums insured. You mm -hmm. see things like £50,000 worth of content or 60. Um, we wanted to, to bring something out that was accessible where you could build a monthly subscription, but you build it yourself. So we get anywhere from £5,000 up to £40,000. And it's really designed to be a sort of you know, an earlier stage customer that um, doesn't have too many things to insure. So renters or first homeowners. So, so I might be, I don't want to, want to be mean here, but is this a crowded space? Because we had Jimmy from Urban Jungle, you've got Lemonade launching in Europe, or are you just going after the big boys with less incumbency and more gusto? Contents insurance is a multi-billion pound market and it's dominated by the big players. So you've got Admirals, Avivas, LVs, and that's where the customers are buying from today. So, you know, we see a lot of problems with, with the products in those markets, um, with, with, with the products that are out there right now, um, mainly being that people are being penalised with admin charges. These are not flexible products. People are not rewarded for loyalty. So, you know, the way that we've approached this is how do we build a better product? Yes, there are other companies that are doing this, but the way that we've approached this is different. Um, we are partnering with who we see as one of the best providers 
globally, both in terms of their ability to be forward-thinking and share our vision for what insurance should look like, but also we're, our customers access their high net worth claims team. So every customer, That's a real plus, right? every customer of Broly Contents gets the high net worth claims experience, which you know people aspire to be a Hiscox customer, and now that's available to to anyone. I didn't see that in the notes. That's that's a real big selling point for me because I've seen those guys win awards year after year after a week yeah. year. So that's that's really impressive. Any questions, guys, to add to? Uh, what Phoebe's just gone and done? Yes. Quick question. <laughs> Am I allowed to ask questions? Is that of course how this you works? Are. Go I don't for know it. how this works. Phoebe, can you tell us about the process of actually designing and building and launching a completely new product like this? And specifically, can you talk about how you actually worked with Hiscox to do that? How did you define roles? How much freedom did you have versus the freedom that they have? We're really interested in this. Really good question. Um, so... It started with research into what what are the problems with the contents insurance today and why are people not buying it? Because younger, I mean, 70% of households buy contents insurance, but for the younger market, it's about 40% of, you know, under 35-year-olds. Um, there's there's complications around, you know, confusion and access, not, not really being able to understand the product. So we wanted to look at um, building something that was simple. Um, we started with, you know, outlining what we thought the cover level should be following that research. Um, his scops then started coming up with what the, you know, the prices and the um, policy wording should look like. And then pretty much for the past year, we've been working every single week um, closely together on refining the, the product wording and, um, and also starting to design what the UX and the app experience would be. So our partnership is, I can only describe it having partnered with a few insurers as, as a golden kind of success story in the way that we work together. But the thing that I would say is of note of Hiscox is that every single person within that team is a decision maker and they really are able to make, you know, underwriting decisions on, you know, very quickly. Um, and they're, they're really sharing our vision for what this can look like. And we're continuing to, de- to develop it as we get user feedback as well. So, um, so it's, when it's, do you plan to come out of beta? Is it, when does it go public so everyone, <laughs> everyone on the show can sign up and try it out? Um, yes. Um, the question that everyone wants the answer to, um, <laughs> The focus for us right now is just carry, continuing to develop the product. And as soon as we're really, really happy with how it's priced and that customers absolutely love it, then sky's the limit. We'll open it up. Dare I even ask what's next after content? Or is that all under wraps? <laughs> um, I mean, the beauty of our policy management platform is that we have such deep insight into every single product line that people are buying. So, you know, contents insurance was very much you know high on the agenda for us because it's um, the second most taken out product. Um, we've got hit list and we'll go after those next. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Moving swiftly along, and this is where I really get my geek on, sadly. Provisico specialises in modelling surface water flooding in real time, utilising the latest weather predictions to make property level flood nowcasts and forecasts. They will be using their tech to target insurers, brokers and big data company partners to understand and improving their flood response times. Uh, Provisico's flood map live uses big data to produce round the clock property level surface water flood risk predictions. That's a mouthful, Laura. Uh, And analytics. Um, These are continuously modelled and updated using a combination of different weather forecasts. So um, we've seen solutions like this before, I believe, or similar ones from people like Flood Flash. Uh, This continues to be, as we're sitting here enjoying the uh, August um, 
liquid sunshine outside. This continues to be a huge issue for uh, UK and global industry. I guess they estimate that the uh, UK insurance market at least 130 million on 2015, 2016 floods. So how impactful could be this sort of type of tech for the industry in general? Are we still seeing lots of demand for it? I would say... I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a flood guy or very deep into the, the problems of the you know, UK uh, flood market in particular. But to me, it's a great example of, where, of how value starts being accumulated outside of the traditional value chain of an insurer. I think insurance is one of the few industries that traditionally have the entire value chain. And now you all of a sudden see, okay, maybe underwriting, tech, um, and even data might sit outside of your value chain and you can create um, better propositions. And to me, this is a great example of um, what the future capabilities of anyone in the insurance industry definitely will be. And it is how to partner better. And to me, that is um, one of many examples of how that um, works. And it's the same with Trov and Lloyd's. That's exactly, to me, it's about partnerships yeah, yeah. and getting these up and running faster. So kudos. I, I guess it's the same for you with weather, right? You know quite a bit about weather, don't you? We know quite a bit about weather, yeah. Um, I, I want to add to that point, which I think is a, a great point, and, and kind of tie it back to some of the work that we're doing. There's a big similarity here, and it's and the vision of our company and this company are actually weirdly aligned in having a much, much broader vision extending beyond traditional insurance value chain of making the world a safer and smarter place. So at, at Flock, we, we actively try to mitigate risks, right? We put tools in the hands of end users to allow them to understand their own risks, make active decisions and not take risks when they can be avoided. And that's exactly what's going on here. I mean, that stat that you gave, Nigel, is a very good one. Um, they estimate that they could have saved the insurance industry in the UK £130 million in 2015-16. And the flip side of that is that they could be saving lives, right? And, and by predicting, by, by providing analytics and predictive capabilities to real human beings and businesses, you can save lives. And that's so much more exciting than a piece of paper, which is an insurance document. It's back to trust. I think people, you mentioned trust earlier. The other thing I like about this a lot is actually they've got some really high profile stakeholders, including the cabinet office, the Met office, the environment agency. They've all facilitated pilots across uh, four UK cities. So, so when you get to something as critical or socially responsible as this, I guess, where, as you say, lives are at risk, it's, it's not flying a drone, it's not the contents of our house. This is life and death in many cases. How, how important is government buy-in at the outset to get, get these things off the ground? I actually don't know whether it's beneficial or detrimental um, in terms of speeding these things along. I think it, it's certainly a um, stamp of the quality of the work that they've done. Um, it's going to be hard to do that, right? I mean, you must do absolutely. it with the FAA. If you're, if you're dealing with a, a public body that has uh, jurisdiction over the things that you do, um, contents insurance is well known as a work path well trodden and we're trying to fix it bit by bit. But going into an area like this actually could be quite difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, we work with regulators. Funnily enough, they move faster than insurance companies in some instances. We went through a six-month negotiation period with the Civil Aviation Authority, um, who said that our product couldn't be launched because they thought that it was contravening uh, EU directives. And after six months, we convinced them that actually it was not contravening EU directives. And then after that, our product was launched and, and took off. And now we actually help to consult the Civil Aviation Authority on these kinds of matters. 
And since that, they have massively raced to digitize their own processes, to work with insure techs, to work with drone technology companies who are pioneering in the aviation space, which demonstrates that whilst regulators move slowly, they're actually often not the roadblock in the insure tech space. Uh, sometimes that roadblock can be large incumbents. And regulators in the UK are phenomenal. And I actually want to give a shout out to the regulators in the UK who are now famous on a world stage for pioneering in insurance, but also in aviation and other industries as well. That is Lovely to hear. And I think in fairness, we always hear that about the UK regulator from the sandbox and the, and the team that, the, that have worked on that. So, so kudos to those guys. Um, one last question on this. I guess it's a, an interesting one because I think in many of these cases, it's not the first product to market. So is there room for all these people? And I guess, Phoebe, looking at you, you come back to the, one of the most crowded spaces with contents insurance or Nick with you, you know, in platform space. Is there always room for one more to do it differently? I think, you know, insurers have been using different systems for flood for, you know, many years. When I was underwriting at Aviva, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges was calculating the flood risk. And you've got consumers that sometimes opt to mitigate flood from their cover because they believe that they're not going to be affected by it because of the hill that's in front of the sea or something like that. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's there's definitely a, a huge role to play in um, it, however many companies it takes to come at this and, and try to make this problem a solved one but you know it's still something that is, is so there's always room for more to do it better absolutely i would agree i, th- I think it was uh bezos who quoted this you know your margin is my opportunity i love that line in and his book. i think at the end of the day as long as there's ample margin in something that is being passed on to the consumer there is room to improve. Uh, we've talked about this on the show before. We had the fintech farmer on. We've had the parametric guys on. It's definitely a piece that I think is starting to join the dots in a bit more of a seamless way for, back to your point, better, better experiences for the end user. Right, moving swiftly along, uh, our next story, I am not barking when I say this, uh, bought by many, no, I really am not, bought by many, partners with FirstVet to offer customers free video vet consultations. I will say that again in case you think I'm going mad. Uh, bought by many partners with FirstVet to offer free video vet consultations. Now, I have to say, I had a good old chuckle at this one. And we were having a little bit of a laugh before the show started on this. Uh, they announced a partnership with FirstVet that will enable their pet insurance customers to access free video consultations with fully qualified vets via the FirstVet app. Now, this to me is almost like telemedicine for your cat, dog, snake, gerbil, whatever your pet of choice may be. Um, They can video call UK registered vets to check a pet's symptoms, get advice and treatment, and could carry out home, or carry out an at-home or find out if they need to be referred to a local vet. I love this. I think it's absolutely cool. It's wacky enough for Stephen and Charlotte and the rest of the team over there uh, on all the cool things they're doing with, um, with, with, uh, with pets. What do we think, guys? Awesome. I, 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 yeah, sorry, go ahead. I agree. I think it's, I think it's really exciting. Um, I think that, I mean, I believe there's a regulation that restricts prescriptions um, being given to pets without them being physically present. So I don't know how that's going to um, affect them when they roll this out. Um, but I think that's something that's going to be relaxed fairly soon. So, um, you know, this is a vet friend inside. Have you all got pets? Yes. No. What have you got? A dog. Right. So dogs are easy, right? Dogs, as they all say in games, dogs have owners, cats have servants. If you get to your dog to sit in your lap and look at the video camera or hold him or she, her, him or her up, relatively straightforward. Have you ever tried summoning a cat? 
I don't have a cat, so no. It's near on impossible. They just look at you and go, I'm not coming near you. Go away, human. It's like, it's like watching The Secret Life of Pets. Imagine that getting in front of a camera. So I think they must have solved it already in somehow, but I can only imagine the hilarity that will come out of uh, the video bloopers reel for this thing. I think a cat would also struggle to explain its own symptoms. And a dog won't? And a dog. Gerbil? <laughs> you can see where we're going with this one. Uh, generally, joke, joke, but, but equally, I've also seen, uh, we've had cats for a while, getting a cat into a cat box to carry it somewhere is a mission impossible almost. It needs Tom Cruise and a whole crew to try and get the cat into the damn box in the first place. Uh, so actually doing this, and one of the things they quote actually is, many common pet health issues can be treated in the comfort of their own home, meaning owners need to only take the pet when they're absolutely necessary. It's generally true when you think about the emergency services for the NHS and health. They say 999 is for people that are dying and being in, in, in serious uh, conditions and use you know 101 or other services accordingly. And this is just that. So it's really interesting to see uh, how this has evolved one thing we did talk about before the show was how do we deal with pet fraud so maybe we're going to get um, Stephen or Charlotte or any of the team on and what I'm thinking here is I couldn't tell one white bichon frise to another white bichon frise how do you not know that it's Ed's dog or my dog and we haven't done a quick switcheroo is there no dog facial recognition technology that they could be leveraging here I'm not sure if I anything witty to answer to that. Someone did mention, Alex did mention, uh, we could use a chip. So therefore we've got to scan in like a scanner at a like at the supermarket. supermarket. Yeah, scan your pet before you get there. I'm sure the guys will have answers to this. I, generally, I think it, it, we all think it's really, really positive. Um, they were named the most trusted pet insurance provider by MoneyWise in June this year. So I think the guys over there do a fantastic job. Uh, congratulations. Looking forward to seeing physically how this works. I might have to subscribe myself to, to give it a go. Yeah, it's awesome. We've actually got a dog and I, I think I'm going to subscribe to this as soon as it comes out. It makes perfect sense. I didn't even know there was such thing as real-time video vet conference capabilities. Have you ever used telemedicine yourself, though? Um, yes. I haven't personally, actually. You have, Phoebe? I have. And you liked it? It's easy? I preferred it to visiting the GP. Just because convenience? More convenience. No stress? No one to put you in a cat box? I am joking, of course. <laughs> no similar levels of stress. Very good. But comfort of your own home, which is great, right? But from home, exactly. Nick? Um, I don't think it's allowed in Germany, so no. Oh, really? No telemedicine at all? Yeah, they have some weird restrictions around it. And you... But I would. Okay. It's uh, it feels like it's the way it's going, and there's been some really cool announcements I mean, in that space. I, I think it's, it's in addition, right? It's another avenue to conduct depending on um, what situation you're in. And I think it's, uh, it's a great way. It's one of those things. My wife took our cat to the, to the vet recently because she got in a fight and came back with blood all over her ears and whatever else. And the story I got, which I won't repeat, about what happened in the vet from a dog that wasn't very well, um, wasn't very pleasant. So, and actually, it's like doctor's surgeries or hospitals. They're kind of like the last places you want to go to get another bug, right? So actually, it could be quite good for the pets too going forward. On that note, while everyone's chuckling away, um, next story is Ecclesiastical offers full backing to London Fire Brigade's plea. Uh, this is from Insurance Business Magazine. Um, and they're stating that not one of the 57 London schools that have had fires so far this year has had an automatic fire suppression system fitted. 
Um, so specialist education insurer, Ecclesiastical, is backing the fire brigade to put pressure on local councils and governments to install the correct sprinklers. Um, actually, I thought Ecclesiastical were actually more focused on church, but equally uh, education is a new one for me. I found this fascinating that none of the schools already have this sort of stuff. So um, where do we even start on this one? Prevention is better than cure, right? Yes. I'm seriously <laughs> so dumbstruck. <laughs> I, I mean, we discussed this. I was like, yes. Fire suppression system seemed like a great idea. Go for it. I'm surprised that this isn't <laughs> yeah. already a, a requirement, um, you know, either on the part of the insurer or within the health and safety regulations of not only schools but any other similar buildings that contain the public. And kids. And children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about our precious little ones here, right? So you'd almost... I've never walked around a school and gone, they haven't got a fire system. I've never even thought about it. <laughs> So, according to, according to Ecclesiastical Representative, the revised version of the government's guidelines, known as Building Bulletin 100, has downgraded the importance of property protection and fails to recognise the significant impacts that fires in the schools have on the local community and children's education. I think with, with the recent um, disasters that we've had in the UK, the fact that, A, this is our loved little ones, um, our, our pride and joy, this should be on the top of everyone's list. So it's great to see that Ecclesiastical uh, are supporting it. I wonder what it would take to um, change this from nice to have to must have in terms of suppression and everything else. Hmm. EU directive. No, I'm just... I'm You're just teasing with this now, aren't you? You're yeah, teasing with yeah, this. No to. one's mentioned Brexit yet. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Yeah. Um, so, so who knows post-October 31, right? Is it the rules in Germany? Do we know? Well, I haven't seen an article similar to that. I, I don't know. I would imagine that uh, they're quite keen on it, but I don't know. Not, the, to, not to play devil's advocate here, um, but I will, because someone has to. There, there presumably is some research and intelligent decision-making, one would hope, um, made by the individuals who are in charge of putting together building Bulletin 100 as to why they downgraded the importance. So either someone malicious in government has decided to make a bad decision with the interest of harming children, or poor research has been conducted and a bad decision has been made, or their decision was correct. But there's enough evidence. There's, the research says, the government stats say there's 1,500 fires in schools and other, edu other educational establishments each year. That's an amazing number of fires. So why, why would you not stop them in advance rather than go out and deal with all the aftermath after afterwards? Is it purely a cost issue? Or Has it been overlooked? I, I'm, I'm at a loss. I, I've never it's been even... actively downgraded, which means that a decision was made somewhere by someone and presumably signed off by a committee and another committee, which is what surprises me about this news story. But I've, I've never even considered it. I've never even thought twice that the schools my kids go to don't have a fire suppression system. You see them all doing their fire drills and whatever else that they do. They come and tell you after school what they've done for the day. And it's great that they practice all this stuff, sort of stuff, but you never realise that these things aren't in place. I wonder what the impact, therefore, is... Um, on their ability to actually acquire, acquire insurance in the first place. Maybe one for one of our municipal insurers next time we get them on the show. Um, but an interesting one for us to watch out for. And I guess if you're in a catchment in a different area of the, of, of the UK, you may not get a choice. Um, it's almost a postcode lottery whether you have it or not. Uh, moving on for our next story, uh, fraudster sentenced after lying about losing partner's engagement ring. And I... Nick's just closed his eyes and shook his head in disbelief. 
This does happen. So a man has been sentenced for making fake travel and jewellery claims, including the loss of his partner's engagement ring. Uh, This is where the City of London Police Insurance Fraud Enforcement Department, the IFED, discovered that Wills had taken out three different insurance policies and made six false claims worth a total of £8,216. These claims included four for the loss of his partner's engagement ring, while the other two were for lost luggage following trips to Ibiza and Mallorca. Where do we even start with this? I mean, Phoebe's smiling away here, going, that was four rings? I was at the nail salon the other day speaking to my nail technician about contents insurance. I'm sure she was delighted about that. You try and say to everyone. As you would. As you would. <laughs> and, you know, and then she casually explained to me that her friend had um, claimed on her insurance for her engagement ring twice for a £30,000 ring. Casually. That's you know. a lot of ring. That's a lot of money. A, a lot of ring, but also, you know, huge, hugely wow. fraudulent claim. And this happens. I mean, it happens in every um, in every sort of vertical of, of insurance. And I think it um, reveals the need for better documentation of claims that are being made and, and recording of those in a database system that insurers share to stop this kind of thing from happening. So, so when I... Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure there's a lot of fraud going going on there. But when I read the story, I, w- I had to think of my mom's a lawyer, and she told me this story. She's like, you know, there's kind of two types of people or two types of traits. You know, you have people with criminal energy, and you know she can kind of stomach that. Uh, and you have people with who are really dumb, and she can stomach that. It gets really annoying when the two of them get together, and that is, I think, what happened here. Because do you think you, she was in on it? Um, I don't think my mom was in on it, but. Um, <laughs> I think she might have been in on it, but I'm, I'm, I was just thinking, you know, if you, for some reason, do fraud, you know, don't put the same email address and the same phone number, you know, be, at least be smart about it. Can um, you say that slower? I'm just going to write this advice down. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you want to do, but at least, you know, come on. This one sounds like, you know, serious fraud. But I think there's there's also an education point because we, we get customers that come to us and say things like, hi, I've just lost my phone. Um, can I buy insurance? And that, you know, th- these are people that have already had a loss and just don't really understand what role insurance plays um, and how the mechanics of it work. So this was obviously fraud. <laughs> Without any doubt. But, but you're right, that's a real hot button of mine, education, education, education. And I wonder... Um, it's the age-old debate. Whose responsibility is this? Is this the insurer's responsibility? Is it the school's responsibility, providing they've not burned down, of course? Um, or is it someone else's? Um, and if it's the insurer's, and I, I educate you and spend all the time doing it, and then you go away to Broly and buy a contents insurance policy, then something's gone wrong. Do we go to uh, the ABI or somewhere else to help people understand what goes on? And I, I've long been an advocate of, when I come out of school, make sure I can change a plug, know what a bank account does, and for heaven's sake, tell me what an excess is. Um, and what the insurance policy does. I think they are fundamentally lacking. This person clearly knew what insurance was for, and the IFED, to to your point, Nick, um, realised he'd use the same contact details, including email, payment address, and phone number when submitting false claims. So actually the fact that insurers do collaborate and talk to each other for things like this is, is super important. Well, you know, at least they catch the idiot, yeah. How would you deal with this in Broly then? How do you deal with fraud there? Catching. How do you catch idiots? Except <laughs> <laughs> not me. Um, well, we have a world-class claims team um, who have fraud experts in the team. And, 
you know, there are, there are fraud indicators um, when claims are being made. So, you know, you look at things like how long has the customer been on risk? Have they missed any payments? Um, have they made sort of repeated changes? Have they added an item that they're about to claim for? So there are things that can can be sort of um, picked up on. And then, you know, then it also comes back to how the customer interacts with the, the claims um, handler themselves. So, you know, asking them to tell the story in different ways and things like that. So there are practices. Um, don't go into them. Don't give away all the secrets just yet. How does it differ, though, when you get to monthly policy for, for, like, for your new contents? How does that work? Monthly versus annual. So if you've got a monthly policy and you're day 26 into day 28 of the month, um, does it differ than an annual policy from a fraud perspective or not? It would, I mean, it would raise a... Uh, more of a red flag if a customer right. had just joined and the next day made a claim versus a customer that's been with us for two years. Absolutely. Um, because you know that that's latter customer better. Um, it wouldn't mean that we wouldn't pay out on a claim. You know, you can take out a policy and be very unfortunate that the next day you're, someone breaks into your home. Um, we would pay out on a claim, but we, we would also monitor that customer afterwards. But we treat our insurance as a book of business rather than you know, individual claims and trying right. to get out of paying them. The, uh, yeah. So I was just going to add that the more data you have on a customer, on, on their behavior and on their circumstances, the easier it is to detect and punish, if necessary, fraud. So my instinct would be that moving to a monthly subscription model actually puts you, or the insurer at least, in a better position with respect to the amount of data that they collect because you're interacting with the customer potentially more. You have a higher fidelity of data interaction with that customer over time. Um, it gets even better, and not to, to plug, but when you move to hourly insurance policies, you can really start collecting. Can, can you do data. hourly policies by eight times? Uh, yeah, we can. And, and One, Nick, two, Nick, four, and eight. The platform can do hourly policies. Yep, if you want to do that. All right. So we can all do it. It puts you in an interesting position as a as a insurance provider if you can know where and when certain things are happening, because then you can start to reconcile multiple data sets when a customer comes along and says, "Hey, I was." playing football in this location or I was um, flying a drone in this location, um, you can actually reconcile that with geospatial data that you collect from their mobile phone or from their drone. And you can start to reconcile those data sets and see if things match up. Uh, unfortunately, Phoebe, to your point, I think this happens all the time, no matter what. We're just that time of year when everyone's going on holiday and we're trying to make cases, and rightly so, of people that are making everyone else's lives in misery by claiming fraudulent things like this. Bottom line, the IFED have caught them. Crime doesn't pay, never has, never will. And insurance, I think the industry as a whole is getting better and better and better at it. So, And it's, I mean, it's to everyone's benefit, right? If you get the fraudsters out of the risk pool, that um, suppresses premiums for everyone else um, and gets closer to the actual idea of insurance. Fantastic. So let's wrap up there. Uh, that's it for the new show this week. Thank you so much to everyone. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Phoebe, Twitter, LinkedIn? Heybrolly.com. Heybrolly.com. You heard it here first. Nick? At casco.io. Ed? Flockcover.com. And then if you're on Twitter, I know you're all on Twitter. This is all ridiculous. Websites. Also on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. So you're everywhere, basically. Please don't go on my Instagram, though. <laughs> Twitter is fine. Instagram. <laughs> I, I can actually vouch for that. Don't go on Ed's Instagram. It's ridiculous. Uh, and, and to that, you can find me at, on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thanks to all of our guests, Nick, Phoebe and Ed. Much appreciated. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you liked what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe. 
to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. Any suggestions or feedback or you'd like to come join us on the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at podcasts at 11fs.com.